Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, first thing I want to talk about is, again, to go to WealthFormula.com. Download your special report on how to legally reduce your taxes Now, it might be a little late for some of you this year, of course, because tax time is right around the corner. But if anything else, looking at your tax bill should give you enough PTSD to take action and go and download that report so you can have a better feeling this time of next year. Now, you can also sign up for Investor Club on WealthFormula.com if you are an accredited investor. And that leads me into the show today. Now, my investor club, as I said, is for accredited investors. What is an accredited investor? Well, it's not something you apply for like it sounds. Being an accredited investor is something you are or you're not. You know, like you're either pregnant or you're not. You know, you don't apply to be pregnant. You just are. Now, an accredited investor is defined by our friends over at the SEC as someone who makes a minimum of $200,000 per year. $300,000 of filing jointly, or has a net worth of $1 million, excluding personal residence. The significance of being an accredited investor is that you can invest in things that those with less money or who are unsophisticated cannot. I mentioned the whole sophisticated thing. So you can also get into some of these opportunities, depending on the type of deal, if you're what's called a sophisticated investor which has a much more nebulous definition, but essentially says that you know what you're doing even if you don't have that much money. Now, these laws were put in place a long time ago to protect the average person from predatory activity. And the irony of this is that there's no protection for the average Joe or, say, the average pension fund, for that matter, against investing in a wildly bloated stock market with record valuations. I mean, listen, every major trader out there knows we are in a bubble. There's no protection for individuals dumping money into their retirement accounts to buy mutual funds. This is an archaic system. 
It doesn't make sense. And certainly there has been some recognition of that fact. In the 2012 Jobs Act, of course, that made it easier for Main Street America to participate in what are quote unquote alternative investments. You know, we had these laws with that made it possible to do crowdfunding and it made it easier for sponsors to go out and actually advertise previously unknown opportunities. However, we have a long way to go. The whole securities thing, in my view at least, is pretty confusing and frankly, but you know, it's really important to understand if you're investing in private placements, you know, like we do in Investor Club, like we advocate on this show in general to stay away from Wall Street and to keep your investing private. And also, of course, if you're sponsoring opportunities yourself, I know we have a bunch of syndicators listening to the show as well. So this week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast will help you to understand some more of this complicated verbiage, right? Because really, it's all about understanding a language. We've said that before. These are not difficult things. It's just another language that we have to learn if we want to succeed in this financial world. So luckily, today, the guy explaining it is a very likable and well-known attorney. Usually, those words don't go together, but they do in this case. It's Mr. Mauricio Raul. So when we come back, Mauricio will tell us all about private investing and securities. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have a special guest. It is Mr. Mauricio Raul, who is the founder and CEO of Premier Law Group, which is a boutique securities law firm. And he is a nationally recognized expert on private placements and works with a lot of entrepreneurs. In fact, he says that he works with a lot of elite entrepreneurs, and I guess that is because he works with me. He is my securities attorney, <laughs> and he is also regularly traveling around the U.S. He's a noted speaker to business groups, is a regular contributor to the Real Estate Guys radio show, and is actually Robert Helm's personal legal advisor. So, Mauricio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Buck. That was quite an introduction, and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's good to have you. So we're talking all the time and with regard to some of the things that I'm doing in Investor Club and that sort of thing. And then Mauricio and I decided, well, it may probably be a good idea to have him on the show and talk a little bit about these things because it's different, right? I mean, you know, if you're a professional and all you've ever done is invest in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, you might not even know exactly what a security is. So how do you define a security as a security attorney? Well, that's a great question. A lot of people think that's an easy question. And most people think of a security as, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you know, maybe LLC interest or, you know, stock in a company. But in fact, a security is really, it's very broadly defined. And so anytime you take somebody's money and you manage that money, and so essentially investor is a passive investor, you're doing all the work, that's a security. And that can be in the form of, of an LLC or a corporation, but it can be in other ways. Like, for example, TIC agreements are securities. Profit sharing agreements are securities. So a lot of time people try 
and think they're getting around the securities laws by being creative and saying, well, I, I won't set up an LLC. I'll just do a note or I'll just, you know, we'll buy, we'll buy the property real estate and take direct title and we'll just do a TIC agreement. And they come up with all these fancy ways of doing it. But at the end of the day, that's kind of all irrelevant. If you're the one doing all the work, collecting money and managing the money for the return, that's a security. Is that the case for even if there is only, you know, like one other person or two other people? Is that still, I mean, you can't just in that situation just have reway tenants in common, which you're calling TIC, by the way, just for clarification. You can't do that. It still needs to have sort of all paperwork related to a security. No, you can do that. But just because it's one other person, again, if you're doing all the work and somebody's putting in the money and you're doing all the work, that's security. Now, if you work with somebody who's a little bit more creative, I mean, we can typically structure your deal differently so that we avoid being considered a security. And that's kind of the way I like to approach it. So we always want to avoid, if possible, going into the world of securities because that just leads to, as you know, a world of compliance and certainly costs go up when you're dealing with securities compliance. So to the extent you're dealing with one other person or maybe even two other people, there are ways that you can structure your deal so that everybody becomes an active participant in the deal and you're not the one who's actually out there doing all the work and everybody just kind of watches you and gives you their money. And so we can structure a lot of these smaller deals with less people. We can structure it in such a way that we avoid being the security and we avoid all those registration and exemptions and all that fun stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Right. So this show in particular, as you know, focuses on private investing. And, you know, we have our own investor club uh, with accredited investors and that sort of thing. Syndicators on the show all the time. You know, it's not the only thing we talk about, but there's a lot of that. And so tell us for people who have not yet participated in the private offerings. I mean, how is it different? How is that process? And you know, the regulation's different from a public offering. Yeah, so we're obviously in this world every day, so we kind of forget that a lot of the population doesn't know too much about private placements, and it's a foreign concept to them. But the easiest thing for me to think of from an investor standpoint, so let's take it from two different perspectives. One, if I'm an investor looking to invest in a private placement versus a, you know, something that's trading on the stock market, the easiest, the first thing that comes to mind when you're doing one of these is that you actually get to know and interact with the management of the company, right? So when if I'm investing in a Buck Joffrey, a Dr. Joffrey fund, then I know Dr. Joffrey and I can pick up the phone and I can call Dr. Joffrey and say, hey, how's it going or what's going on? And you can give you my input and he, you know, you can describe to me how things are going. You know, you're not gonna be able to call up former Bill Gates when you had some stock of Microsoft and figure out what's going on or, or Steve Jobs or Zuckerberg, right? That's just not gonna happen. You're just gonna buy the stock and hope it goes up or what have you. So more the intimate nature of the investment and knowing the management team and being able to have conversations and do your due diligence on the management team is obviously one huge advantage. And from a syndicator standpoint, it also, it's very different from obviously listing on the stock market and the stock exchange, because I try to keep it as simple as possible. But at the end of the day, if you are dealing with a security, which I'm going to assume we are after our definition at the beginning, then there's really only three things you need to worry about, right? One is you've got to register your syndication with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or you have to find an exemption to registration. And we can talk about those or find those all day long, or it's illegal. Those are your three options. You either register it, you find an exemption, or it's illegal. It's that simple. And you're obviously not having to worry about, well, the stock exchange in terms of you know going public and all the regulatory compliance that goes along with that stuff. Got it. So... In terms of the types of private offerings that people see, like what are the typical private offering look like? What types of offerings are out there that people are 
you know, commonly seeing if they're accredited investors? Yeah, most of my practice deals with real estate investors. So I would say, you know, 95% of my clients are real estate investors who have usually have run out of their own money or they want to go do bigger deals. And so they're taking down, you know, multifamily apartment complexes, which require a little bit more capital than single family homes. You know, you're typically raising a million, million and a half, maybe $2 million to take down one of those properties. I'm seeing a lot lately, the mobile home park space. For some reason, that's coming on my radar. A lot of people are investing in mobile home parks and having funds for that. And assisted living facilities, those are also kind of coming up on the radar. That's a demographic shift, right? Uh, Populations getting older and there's a need for assisted living facilities for our older generation. And again, you're not going to see that in the stock market. That's not the type of companies you're going to be able to invest in in the stock market. These are very specific niches that people get into. And again, it's, it's something that you need to do your due diligence with, but you have the ability to pick up the phone and have conversations with the managers who are putting these deals together. But that's what I see primarily. It's all real estate. And like I said, lately, it's been shifting in addition to the multifamily to these other little niches, which is really cool. So when somebody has an offering, sometimes you hear about Reg D, Reg C, stuff stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So that's into, you know, again, big picture. We talked about the three things we worried about, registration, exemption, or illegal. I'll tell you right off the bat, you don't want to be registering your syndication, right? The registration process takes, you know, 12, 18, 24 months. It can cost you six figures, seven figures. You just don't have that kind of time if you're trying to put an offer into an apartment complex to wait that much time and deal with the bureaucracy. So we're always looking for an exemption. And luckily for us, there's a couple of exemptions to registrations that 90 to 95% of the people use. In my world, actually, I'd say more than 95 to 98% of the people use the exemption. And that exemption is what we call Regulation D, as in David. It's called a Reg D exemption. And within Reg D, there's actually two sub-exemptions, but two parts of that Reg D. Uh, Not to get too technical, but it'll be as technical as we get, uh, (laughs) Buck. There's two exemptions. One's called 506B, as in boy, and one's called 506C, as in Charlie. And those have two different sets of rules that if you can comply with those rules, then you're going to fit into one of these neat exemptions, which will allow you to proceed without having to register your security. Right. And then what's that? And then you've got Reg D, right? And then what's Reg D? So Reg 506B and 506C are fall within Reg D. And so mm-hmm. the difference is, look, three years ago, if we were having this conversation three years ago, we would only have one option and that would be 506B. Back in the old days, as I like to say, which we still do today. I mean, today, you know, I still say the majority of my clients do use 506B still. But that exemption allows you to raise an unlimited amount of money and it allows you to accept a limited number of non-accredited investors. And I'll, I'll get into the definition of that real quick. But you're entitled to use up to 35 non-accredited investors, which essentially means investors who have less than a million dollars in net worth excluding their personal residence, or investors who make less than $200,000 a year for the last couple of years. Those are non-accredited. And so a lot of people who want to do syndications who have friends and family and, and want those people involved that aren't necessarily accredited, they like this exemption a lot because it allows them to accept a limited number of non-accredited. The main limitation with this, and this is what we used to have to deal with three and a half years ago now, it was September of 2013, is you're not allowed to advertise your syndication and you're not allowed to generally solicit. So you have to have some type of a pre-existing relationship with your investors in order to use this exemption, which you know has its limitations. I mean, there's only so many people within your network. You become somewhat serious syndicator and you're doing multiple. At some point, your inner circle may run out of cash. 
And so three years ago, it actually was longer than that. It was actually 2012. We passed what was called the Jobs Act, and then it finally got implemented in, in September of 2013, which basically eliminated that prohibition against advertising and soliciting. So as of about three years ago, a syndicator can go out and advertise, go on radio shows, you know, put an ad in the Super Bowl, you know, put out an ad in a newspaper, do a seminar, a webinar, what have you, to people they've never met before. And that's okay, except that now they are limited to only having accredited investors only. So there's no longer, if you're going to do that, if you're going to go advertise and talk to people you've never met, you can only use accredited investors. And you do have to take what we call uh, reasonable steps to verify that they are accredited. We can no longer rely on their, you know, their representation, you know, check the box questionnaire. We actually have to take some additional steps, which typically involve reviewing some of their tax documents to confirm their income levels or asset levels or getting some verification from their CPA or something that said, hey, look, these guys are accredited and are safe to proceed. Right. So just for perspective, I know a number of people in my investor club are, are dealing with some of these things that we're doing. You know, for example, in Belize, we have that offering for the luxury hotel in Mahogany Bay. By the way, there's uh, still a little bit of space in there. So if you're interested, let me know. But what's happening there is people let me know they're interested. And when they're pretty sure they want to get in, what we're doing is actually getting a third party verification person involved not a person, but in this case, it's like a website called Verify Investor, then that takes it out of my hands. And then basically they use an attorney, et cetera, in the back end to do the verification. And yeah. so the reason I'm doing that is because we're doing this as 506C. And that just makes it a little bit easier because, you know, we're still getting to know some of the people in an investor club. So one key thing with 506B2 is you have to have a pre-established relationship, right? right. That's one of yep. the major parts of it. It's not just the sophisticated investors, but if you're going to invest in a 506B, which most of the apartment buildings that will be syndicating will be 506B, they will require a pre-established relationship. That's why I've tried to emphasize several times now, if you are an investor club already, that you got to make sure that you, you know, schedule some time to talk to me. The other question I have, though, about 506B in particular, Mauricio, is you mentioned the sophisticated investors. First of all, what is a sophisticated investor? A, typically, a sophisticated investor is somebody who's non-accredited. If they have a sufficient knowledge and experience in financial matters that they can make a capable you know, evaluation of the merits of an investment. So they've got to have some history and some background. If they don't, they can go to an advisor and advisor, you know, professional advisor can take over that sophistication. But it's just making sure that you're not taking funds from, you know, the, the, the classic example that the government likes to use, you know, the, the old widow and you know somebody who has no experience whatsoever and, and they start investing. They've got to have some financial background so they can at least make an intelligent evaluation of the merits of your investment. Well, does investing, you know, having a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds constitute you know, sufficient, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, not necessarily. I mean, right. people buy stocks and bonds. And again, this kind of an archaic is the right word, but it's just kind of a definition that's out there. I mean, a lot of things happen with representation. So as long as you get a representation from your investor that they are sophisticated, that you have that luxury of relying on that representation. So you'll see that in, in a lot of the documentation that I put together is just making sure you as an investor are representing to me that you have sufficient knowledge and experience in financial matters that you can make an intelligent decision. Right. And I can rely on that representation. So the ball is really in the investor's court in that regard, isn't that? 
yeah, it's in their court. And it's my job really just to kind of highlight that and just say, hey, look, this investment's only for sophisticated folks. So make sure you, you know, and I know a lot of your listeners have invested, especially with you. I mean, they've seen the disclosure documents. These offering documents are basically meant to tell you how everything can go wrong and, and all the risks involved. And so there's plenty of places for us to make sure that your investors know that, you know, there's risks involved, just like everything else, and that they've got to be able to make an intelligent decision as to whether this, this is right for them and whether the risks, you know, outweigh the reward. Yeah. You know, actually, I was joking around with one of my investors, a couple of them about this, because a lot of physicians and surgeons, it reminds me a lot of a surgical consent. You know, I mean, it's sort of like yeah. you, oh. you know, literally yeah, yeah. No, anything and exactly. everything that could go yeah. wrong. And it probably won't, hopefully, knock on wood. But if it does, don't say I said it was not possible for something to go wrong. So it's effectively the same kind of document. Thank you for reminding me about that, because that's the exact example I I use from stage when doing these seminars, because... You know, everybody gets not excited and nobody gets excited, but people always want to see the, you know, the private placement memorandum or the PPM, you know, before they make a decision. And I say, nobody's going to make a decision to invest in your deal based on the PPM. Just like, I mean, the PPM tells you how everything can go wrong, like your medical consent form. Nobody's going to go into surgery based on the medical consent form. If anything, you've got to convince them to do the surgery, despite the fact that you're giving them the medical consent form. And it's the exact same thing in the syndication. You've almost have to over convince them that this is a great investment for them because you're going to then send them the PPM and they're going to have to overcome all those fears because they're just going to list how every single possible way that the investment can go south so that they're aware of it. That's really our job is just to make sure they're aware of all the risks in there and then they can make an intelligent decision whether they want to invest or not. Yeah, the irony is that all the money that people lost in 2008, nobody had to sign right. sign off on that. Isn't that strange? It, now that's, that is strange. <laughs> you know, it's just a funny way. I don't want to get too political, but it's, it's always interesting to see how the government likes to pick winners and losers in terms of what they're going to try and protect and what they're not going to try and protect. One little detail I also was curious about just personally was the you said that in these 506B ones where, you know, you can use sophisticated investors, there's typically a percentage of sophisticated investors. Now, what is that percentage? In percentage, when I say percentage, when you're dealing with a non-accredited but sophisticated investor, it's prudent. There's no fine line, but I typically recommend clients to only take a portion of their investable funds or their net worth or what have you. I mean, if their entire net worth is $100,000, well, you don't want to be taking $90,000 of their money no, I guess, or all the hundred, right? Just to, I guess, to clarify my question yeah. from the syndicator standpoint, is there a, a Oh, I'm sorry. Cap? Yeah, yes. Yes. There's a cap. There's, under the law, you're only allowed to take up to 35 non-accredited, but sophisticated investors. So most of the time that's not an issue. It's, yeah, it's, right. Yeah. That makes sense because yeah. then you're looking at people who are you know, if you're trying to do an apartment building with 35 investors, you know, and you got 50 grand a piece, you're still going to raise a lot of money. Yeah. Theoretically, you could have a private placement. And of course, I don't do this, but it's 506B that doesn't have a single accredited investor. Correct. You okay. could. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. You could take all. Yeah. I probably do a disproportionate amount of syndications with non-accredited investors. A lot of syndicators like to focus on accredited only because there's a couple. Let's talk a little bit about the differences there between the non-accredited and accredited. So first of all, the law treats them different, whether that's correct or not. It is what it is, right? So the government treats an accredited investor as somebody who's smarter, knows more, and needs less protection 
that are non-accredited. That's been in debate and that might change at some point just because you have more money. Does that really make you smarter? That's not necessarily. So they're actually talking about a different way of calculating accredited investors by either taking maybe taking the test or an exam or background and your licenses and all that stuff just because that might be a more accurate way of doing it. But right now, the law assumes that accredited investors need less protection. And so when you're only dealing with accredited investors, the syndicator has less of a liability because they're big boys in the eyes of the government, as opposed to when you start attracting non-accredited, well, now the government assumes they don't know anything, and it's now your job to actively make sure that they're aware of all the risks and give them all the disclosures, and if you miss one, they're going to come after you. So that's one thing. So a lot of syndicators prefer, if they can, to stick with accredited, and so a lot of the practitioners tend to do that, and for some reason, in my practice over the last 10 years, I tend to do a lot of non-accredited, I would say probably disproportionately with others. And then the other issue is, and quite frankly, I've seen this in action too, non-accredited, because they have less funds, the one place it does come into play is if there needs to be additional capital contributions. Let's say that the, the investment isn't going quite as planned. We need a little bit more cash. You know, everybody, please kick in another $20,000. Well, for the non-accredited, that $20,000 is a much bigger deal than for somebody who's got a lot more wherewithal. And so you tend to hear it a lot more from the non-accredited. They t- tend to take up a lot more of your time because, again, their investment is, represents a much higher percentage of their net worth. And so they're a little bit more concerned about it than somebody who's got plenty of resources. And this is just one of, of many investments. So obviously, there's all sorts of rules here. Now, what are the penalties? Obviously, it's not the investor who's really liable. It's a syndicator, right? And if yeah. you are a syndicator and, you know, you really haven't vetted or you, you really don't have a pre-established relationship with your sophisticated investors and you're just taking their money, what's the risk to the syndicator? Well, first and foremost, you're in violation of federal securities laws, which is not to be taken lightly. You At a jail. minimum. Uh, You could go to jail. Absolutely. You could Mm -hmm. go to jail. That's kind of at one level. Realistically, that's typically reserved for the Bernie Madoffs of the world and involved in real fraud, right? You're intentionally defrauding people. You're intentionally trying to deceive and get people's money. But even if you're an honest syndicator and you just forgot to cross your T's and dot your I's and took somebody in and they happen to be a non-accredited and you didn't do your job to, to check, at a minimum, what I tell people from stage is you're at a minimum, you are guaranteeing the investment. Because if something goes wrong and it turns out you're in violation of securities laws, you're going to have to return all of the investors' money plus interest. So if you go south, they're going to come after you and restitution is going to be the number one. And then, of course, depending on the severity of the infraction, then the federal or the state government can come after you and then fees and penalties and fees, which can add on to that. And then they can obviously prevent you from doing any syndications in the future. So I don't want to say it's impossible, but jail is probably not where you're going to end up. But barred from future syndications and certainly going to be on the hook for returning investors money, even though the investment may have gone south for no fault of your own. You know, maybe the real estate market turned and you lost money and it's no fault of yours. But because you didn't cross your T's and dot your I's, you're going to be expected to make the investor whole. So tell me, what is a pre-established relationship? So let's be clear. So the pre-existing relationship is really sort of a cheat sheet for you to kind of get around it. The rules themselves don't reference a pre-existing relationship. So what the prohibition is, is you cannot advertise or generally solicit, meaning you can't go to a conference and start passing out your business cards to people you don't know. You can't put ads in the radio. You can't do all that stuff. And so if you have a pre-existing relationship with somebody, then obviously you've obtained them without the need to go advertise and solicit because you already know them, right? But it is possible to not have a pre-existing relationship with an investor and yet also not engage in advertising a solicitation. And the easiest example of that is somebody refers you. 
right? If you're doing such a great job and Mauricio's in one of your funds and I say, hey, Johnny, I'm in Dr. Joffrey's fund and he's doing a great job. You should check him out. And I refer him to you and you talk to him. You don't have a pre-existing relationship with that person, but you also have an advertiser or solicited. So there are other ways to do it. So it's not a bright line about whether it's pre-existing or not. It has to do more with did you advertise or solicit that particular investor, which is what you cannot do. Got it. Got it. All right. You know, obviously, we talked a lot about, you know, some of the rules and regulations, and hopefully that'll make it more clear to people because in terms of investor club, like I said, right now I have two tiers, basically people who I have talked to in fair amount and, you know, have had created relationships. And when we have offerings that are sort of 506B, they qualify for them. And then the people who are on investor club list who I have don't have a relationship, you can't really invest with me unless you have that relationship. Yeah. That's the way I'm playing it. And so that's why we did 506C for Belize, because we just want to make sure that we maximized it out. But let's look at it from the standpoint of the investor. If I'm an investor, because there are a lot of predators out there and it's interesting just to give you a sense, Mauricio, I've had people ask me if, you know, hey, I've got this deal. Will you put it in front of your investors? And we're going to take 40 or 50% of this deal. And I look at it and there's just no way I would ever do it. But there's predators out there, right? There's right. predators. And what can you say from the standpoint of, you know, investor? How can you identify like red flags that people should be looking for, whether it comes from the documentation or things that you've seen? Any words of wisdom there? Well, like anything that's that involves a serious investment, I mean, I would recommend that the investor obviously do as much due diligence as possible in, in reviewing the docs and understanding the investment. But really, they should show it to an expert, an attorney. There's no reason why they can't. It shouldn't take that long. I mean, people ask me to do it all the time. It may take me an hour to kind of review the paperwork. And I can tell pretty quickly when something's off. I mean, it, it can be something egregious as, hey, they're not giving you the proper disclosures. They're taking non-accredited investment. They're not providing a PPM. And, and there's a bunch of things like that. But there's a lot of legal things that you can look for. And there's also just from a business perspective, you know, you just got to poke holes at it. And if if you're not sophisticated, that's one of the issues. You sometimes aren't able to identify and see what all the risks are. And and if they're not pointing them out, you sometimes need an attorney or another syndicator who's got some experience. Ask them to take a quick look at it and they can give you their two cents and maybe ask some questions that you didn't think of. And, And that's kind of the process that I would do. I think part of it, too, goes down to the whole purpose of these laws in the first place, which is to protect people who don't might not be as sophisticated as maybe they even think they are. Right. But and it just, again, goes back to what does it mean and why would you want a pre-established relationship? Well, presumably, if you have a pre-established relationship, you know, you're less likely just running into a shark. Right. I mean, that's part of the idea is. If you have some knowledge or some background with this person, they're less likely to screw you over or something like that. I'm just speculating. Yeah. And it's also important when you have a pre-existing relationship and you're doing a great job, Buck, of talking to your people that you're doing business with. So it's important for you to get an understanding of what level they're at. I mean, I know you're dealing a lot with accredited, but if they're non-accredited, how much money do they have? So what is a suitable investment for them, right? Because if all they've got is $100,000, you know, giving them a $100,000 deal in some very speculative, you know, home run type deal, it's not for them. They probably need to invest $25,000 in a more secure, you know, secured by real estate. And maybe it's a promissory note that's just secured and giving a nice solid return, but nothing crazy. But you don't know that if you don't have a relationship with that person. You don't know what their wants and needs and what their circumstances are. And, and this investment is really truly suitable for their particular investment 
profile and where they are in life, right? Obviously, an 80-year-old person should not be investing in the same things that a 25-year-old person is investing in. Yeah. And actually, you know, it just goes back to the whole point of this thing is a surge of consent, right? And when you go to a physician, you go to a surgeon, you got to have a procedure done or something like that. You got to pick out your surgeon based on whether reputation or whether you like them or, you know, know them and you feel good about it. That has to be a big part of it. And at the yeah. end of the day, regardless of whether you're going to a bad surgeon, a good surgeon, you're still going to sign a surgical consent, right? right. So you really got to understand and know, like, and trust, you know, who you're investing with. And I think that's a big part of it. Switching gears real quick, um, you know, since we've got you there, you know, you see a lot of these portals now, these crowdfunding portals. What are your thoughts on those? How do they work? And, you know, are they sort of the same or? Yeah. So it could probably do a whole podcast just on crowdfunding, right? So yeah. a lot of people throw that term around and it, they really mean two different things. And so crowdfunding in terms of a securities crowdfunding has, has actually been around for three and a half years. The one that most people were talking about crowdfunding and, and that's just 506C. Because as soon as 506C came online and you're now allowed to advertise and solicit and not have to have a pre-existing relationship and you can just go, go talk to whoever, then it's perfectly fine to throw up a website, right? And start attracting people into your website and do some marketing and, and attract deals and attract people into a website and then do the deal that way. And people call it crowdfunding and that's fine, but it really is just a 506 exemption that just happens to be on the website. The true crowdfunding is what really technically is called a regulated crowdfunding just came online last year. I guess we're in March already, but it came online the first quarter of last year. And that does allow you to advertise somewhat and take an unlimited number of non-accredited investors. The what is that one called? This is called regulated crowdfunding. Okay. And it's a separate exemption. So it's not 506D. It's under a Title 484, 483. I forget the, the specific statute number. But here are the limitations. Limitation is you can only raise up to a million dollars in any given 12-month period. So that's your first limitation. The second limitation is that you can't throw up your own website, right? It has to be a either a broker, securities broker, or what's called a funding portal, which in order to be a funding portal, you have to get a license from the SEC. And so these funding portals are highly regulated. And essentially, you put your syndication, you put it into one of these websites, these portals, and there's a limited amount of marketing that you can do, but essentially you're pointing to the portal, right? You're saying, hey, I'm looking to raise a million dollars for an investment property. Here's the link to the portal. And then everything else, all the marketing has to happen at the portal level. So you're not the one doing really most of the marketing. It's the portal that does it. And there's restrictions. So in terms of how much money people can invest, it's very, very limited. So if you're a non-accredited investor and you're putting me on the spot, you're trying to not memorize. I think it was five grand or some percentage or max at five grand or something like that. That part's easy. It's $2,000 or 5%, whichever's lower. Oh, yeah. And, and then depending on net worth and your income. And so that's a pretty big limitation. And if you're a credit investor, you're capped out at 10% of your net worth or $100,000 period across all, all investments. But the big issue becomes really twofold in my mind. And I'm not something you shouldn't do. I've actually, if some people are interested, I've actually got an article that I wrote called The Good, The Bad, The Ugly about regulated crowdfunding. So it kind of goes through all this analysis. But obviously, the million dollars is an issue. I mean, if you're trying to raise you know, more than that over time, then that becomes an issue. And then you're, you're dealing with a lot of small investors, right? $2,000, $1,000, $500. I mean, if you raise a million dollars, you may have 100 or 200 investors in your deal. And that's 100 or 200 investors that you have to manage. And, and it's and, an accounting and, nightmare, too. <laughs> it's an ones. I mean, that's kind of a nightmare. And then the cost. And so depending on the amount that you're raising will depend on the, le- the level of compliance for the right for the portal and the cost to raise that money. It's not free, right? You don't just put it on the portal and raise a million dollars. You may end up spending 
10, 15% of the raise, which can add up to the, in order to do these portals. So they're not the end all be all, but they're not terrible either. So it depends on what really your philosophy is and what you're trying to accomplish. And then this may be a strategy that makes sense within your overall plan. If anybody wants that white paper, shoot me an email, buck at wealthformula.com. Mauricio, how do we get a hold of you? Website's probably the easiest. It's premierlawgroup.net, N-E-T. So again, that's premierlawgroup.net. I've actually got a, a little video up there and there's a little box where you can just get your info in there and that'll come to me. And I'm happy to talk to any of your listeners if they've got some questions or interested in the world of syndications. I'm always happy to teach and educate and share my knowledge. Yeah. So I use Mauricio. Mauricio is a great guy. Obviously, you can tell he's not your typical attorney. He's a very likable And (laughs) he's a good guy. So I highly recommend him to syndicators out there. But also, Mauricio, what if people want, they're thinking about investing in something? Do you do like, you know, one hour consultations where a couple hours where may they want you to review a PPM, make sure that, you know, it looks okay? No, absolutely. If if anybody's got, wants to send me the docs, I I can take, I can usually take a quick glance at them and say, okay, this is going to take me an hour, hour and a half, two hours, depending on the complexity of the deal. And then I can always just let everybody know what that'll run. It's just an hourly, but yeah, I'm happy to do that and do that all the time. Yeah. I think that's actually a really good idea. A number of you out there obviously are in investor club and a lot of those PPMs are coming from Mauricio. So, (laughs) so you can send them back and say, what do you think of this guy, this Mauricio guy? (laughs) <laughs> That's probably a conflict for me if they're investing in all your deals. Right. But if you're investing in somebody else's deal, right. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> exactly. Well, great. Mauricio, great having you on. I'm sure we'll hear from you again in the next few months and get some updates and, and talk about other stuff. But thanks again for being on. Hey, appreciate you having me and uh, congratulations on the success of the podcast. Great. Hope you've enjoyed that discussion with Mauricio Raul. So now that you know the rules... Go join Investor Club and schedule a call with me, right? Once we get to know each other, you can invest in the 506B opportunities, which typically are going to be any apartment building that we do. And for the rest of you, all sorts of things to invest in out there. Listen, you know, you don't have to say, well, I'm not accredited. I can't do anything. Look at half the shows that I've done have been things that you can invest in. And you should do that. You should try to become accredited over time. And of course, there's also the opportunity to become sophisticated. Now, that is a trickier definition, so I won't even pretend to define that. But if you're sophisticated and you know somebody who's doing some kind of a 506B offering, somebody that you know and trust, go consider hooking up with them and getting involved that way. Listen, the key here is to take this education and to turn it into action. That said... Until next time, this is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.